Welcome to the Theological Touchpoints Podcast. I'm Julian. The focus for this episode is touchpoints at the intersection of biblical theology and everyday life. Welcome back to the podcast and to this series on hell. Is hell eternal? We are specifically seeking to understand a recently resurfaced doctrine of hell, that by the name of annihilationism or conditional immortality. In this series, I want to help us understand conditional immortality as a framework and analyze it biblically. Now, I certainly don't have a corner on the truth. What I'm saying in this podcast, in this series, should certainly not be the last word, but it's at least a place to start. That said, I did do a four-day deep dive into this issue to try to figure it out. I think that what I discovered will be helpful for you, too. If you haven't listened to the last episode on hell, I recommend that you do that before continuing with this one. These episodes build on one another, and you'll get the most benefit from them by listening to them in order. If you did catch that episode, you may recall that in that episode I did some work laying the groundwork for the entire discussion. First, we need to recognize that many of us have failed in recent decades to emphasize the biblical doctrine of hell. As a result, many of us have poorly founded ideas of hell— And by that, I don't mean that our ideas or assumptions are necessarily wrong, but that they've become detached from Scripture. Second, as we analyze conditional immortality, we need to be sure that our primary authority is Scripture. Tradition is helpful, but it is no authority. Orthodoxy, those beliefs that have been held by the Church historically, is likewise a good and necessary test of the truth, but just because something has been believed for a long time doesn't make it true. For example, sacramentalism, uh, the belief that grace is received through the sacraments, is a long-standing belief stretching back to some of the early church fathers. That doesn't make it a biblical view. God's written word alone gives us the proper perspective on the truth. And my aim in this series is to spend the lion's share of our time looking at what the Bible says about hell, and specifically whether or not the Bible Uh, teaches or allows for the conditional immortality or the annihilationism view of hell. In addition to this foundational discussion, I touched briefly on the three prevailing views of hell. For context, let's review them again. First, the traditional view. This is the default position of most of Christianity historically. This view defines hell as eternal conscience torment for the sinner as the just consequence for his sin. A second is annihilationism, or conditional immortality, which is the newer term. We'll talk about that a bit later. This view defines hell as the place where sinners are consumed, where they are destroyed for their sin, where they are annihilated. And we will spend some more time on this view in this episode. Third is universalism, which says that all men will eventually be reconciled to God. According to universalism, hell is a temporary place of suffering from which sinners may be saved if they repent, built on the idea that God would never turn away a repentant sinner. As mentioned last time, this view has been rejected by all Bible-minded believers. Universalism has never been accepted as an orthodox belief in any mainstream of Christianity Universalism isn't a pressing heresy at this point, though Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, which is a book on universalism, has made its rounds in some of our conservative circles. But because it isn't currently a pressing heresy, it doesn't require our attention at this point. And so, again, we're looking primarily at annihilationism, conditional immortality, 
in trying to understand it and in looking at it in light of Scripture. Toward the end of the episode last time, we examined some of the biblical language of hell. Hell is described in Scripture as a place of suffering, pictured as such by terms like fire, darkness, anguish, punishment, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. It is a dreadful place, one reserved for the wicked and for all who rebel against God. Very soon here, we're going to take a closer look at conditional immortality. But before that, I want to clarify one thing from the previous episode. In that episode, I said that Hades is used of the temporary dwelling place of all of the dead, both of the believing and of the unbelieving. I'd like to modify that statement. In the Old Testament, the term Sheol is typically used of the grave or of the realm of the dead. And in the Old Testament, uh, the realm of the unrighteous and of the righteous are not distinguished. Sheol is used indiscriminately for all those who have died. Now, this doesn't mean that the Old Testament necessarily teaches that the righteous and the unrighteous went to the same place. It simply means that that distinction is not made by the word Sheol. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was in use during Jesus' life and ministry and the apostles' lives and ministry, the Septuagint uses Hades to translate Sheol, so it does seem that the concepts are connected from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That said, the use of Hades in the New Testament is typically connected with concepts of death and judgment. Since the New Testament at times describes Hades as a place of torment, it seems we should understand it as inhabited only by the unrighteous and not by the righteous and the unrighteous, or the believing and the unbelieving, as I said in that episode. Now, I did make clear in that episode that even if we take Hades as including both the realm of the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead, that there would be two distinct regions within Hades, one for the righteous and one for the unrighteous. Um, That's really not clear in scripture. But again, Hades being used in connection with judgment often in the New Testament, it seems we should take that as primarily uh, the holding place of the unrighteous, um, a place of suffering uh, while they await the final judgment. And of course, Hades as a place is cast into the lake of fire in Revelation, the lake of fire being the eternal place of judgment inhabited by the wicked then Hades at that point would cease to exist. Uh, The temporary dwelling of the righteous is described other places in the New Testament as paradise and also as a place where we are present with the Lord. So the righteous will not be suffering in the period between their death and the final judgment and final restoration to God. They will exist for that time in a place of paradise, a place of, of comfort and joy being in the presence of Christ, in the presence of the Lord. And the unrighteous will exist in what's called the intermediate state, uh, from now or from the time of their death until the final judgment, in the place called in the New Testament, uh, Hades. So, with that out of the way, let's move back into our study, our main study here of conditional immortality. And we don't have time in this episode to critique this view necessarily. What we're getting at this time is primarily what is the view, what does it teach, and then we'll take time next time to analyze it in light of Scripture. So already in our study, we've looked at how the Bible describes hell. Hell, again, is a place of judgment, a place of suffering, a place of anguish. Conditional immortality agrees with the majority of what we've laid out so far, as far as the place of hell, its reality, its substance, and its suffering. 
Those who hold to conditional immortality maintain that all these things are true. Hell is real, it is the destiny of sinners, and it is terrible. The point of departure between conditional immortality and the traditional view, that which I'm guessing most of you hold to, the point of departure is not the reality of hell, rather it is the eternality of hell, or more specifically, the eternality of the human soul. And let's break that down. Perhaps the first essential piece of the conditional immortality framework is that they do not believe that man is immortal by nature. Now, this takes a little bit for our minds to get used to the first time we hear it, because I'm guessing most of you, as I would have, would grow up assuming that we are immortal, that we are eternal creatures by nature, that God, when he made us living beings, living souls in Genesis, uh, gave us the gift of eternal life in in that instance, and the, the default state of humanity is immortal, is eternal, that even when the body dies, the soul continues. And this is not what those who believe in conditional immortality hold to. Edward Fudge, who is a leader in the conditional immortality movement, says, quote, the Bible portrays the human creature as wholly mortal. The Bible portrays the human creature as wholly mortal. Humans are not created with an immortal soul, again, according to conditional immortality. Rather, they are given immortality upon the condition of believing. Those who do not believe simply cease to exist. One of the difficulties with the old framework, that of annihilationism, is it gives the idea of God destroying an otherwise eternal soul. And that idea is a bit difficult for us, is a bit objectionable to us. Conditional immortality solves this riddle of God terminating a soul, putting the weight toward God's granting in eternal life to an otherwise immortal person. So again, annihilationism traditionally would say that an otherwise immortal, eternal soul is terminated in hell, is annihilated in hell. Conditional immortality, the more friendly framework, says, no, we're all created mortal. The offer of the gospel is not between eternal judgment and eternal salvation, but rather is the offer of experiencing eternal life, um, immortality, rather than mortality, and without accepting the gospel, we just remain mortal. This is precisely why moderns prefer conditional immortality over annihilationism. The latter indicates the annihilation of an otherwise eternal soul. The former, conditional immortality, indicates that a soul is only immortal if granted that life by God. This, then, shapes the offer of the gospel— Since we are not immortal by nature, rather than the gospel being a choice between everlasting life in heaven and everlasting judgment as hell, as most of us have probably assumed all our lives, within conditional immortality, the gospel is simply an offer of eternal life. John 3.16 is used as a prime proof text. Uh, In it, Jesus says that those who believe will not perish, but will be given everlasting life. Perishing is understood as ceasing to exist. Everlasting life is the gift of eternal life, life beyond natural mortality. Yes, those who perish may suffer punishment for a time, but they will ultimately be no more. They will ultimately cease to exist. They will ultimately be blotted out. But according to conditional immortality, mortality is the default state of all of us. 
immortality is only granted upon faith. Thus, conditional immortality. Immortality is conditional, conditioned by faith. Those who believe are given eternal life. Those who do not believe are annihilated or cease to exist or are destroyed or consumed in hell. So the first piece that we need to kind of get a hold of is conditional immortality doesn't believe we are immortal by nature, and that allows them to make room for a soul ceasing to exist in hell, um, since, again, according to their view, a soul is not eternal unless it is made eternal by God, um, again, on the condition of faith. Second in the conditional immortality framework is a separation between the eternality of hell and the eternality of the human soul. So the traditional view of hell would read scripture where it says, where it uses language such as eternal destruction, eternal judgment, everlasting fire, and would assume that since hell is eternal, then the judgment of hell is also experienced eternally. It's a a natural assumption from the text. Unconditional immortality says, well, just because hell is eternal doesn't necessarily mean that people will be in it for all eternity. One of the strongest arguments for hell as eternal conscious torment, the traditional view, is the numerous instances where the Bible uses language such as everlasting fire, everlasting destruction, and everlasting condemnation. These are traditionally understood to point to eternal suffering. Those who believe in conditional immortality interpret these as meaning that hell itself is eternal, but the sinner who is thrown into hell is not. Since everlasting and eternal are used with fire and destruction, and not of the sinner himself, these phrases are understood to teach that only hell itself is eternal. The sinner is not. So that's a second piece of the framework. Third, and related to this, they interpret the verses that speak more pointedly of the judgment of the sinner himself as meaning that eternal means that the judgment is irreversible. Against the traditional view, which says that the judgment itself is experienced eternally, conditional immortality says that this everlasting judgment, as in Matthew 5, 46, is the punishment of ceasing to exist for all eternity. That is, the judgment is eternal in the sense that it cannot and will not be undone. The damned forevermore cease to exist. Eternal condemnation in conditional immortality does not mean endless condemnation, but merely the permanent condemnation of annihilation. The soul who is sent to hell is consumed, eternally ceasing to exist. So I hope you can see in this, and what we've already talked about so far, that those who believe in conditional immortality are not ignoring scripture in developing their beliefs. In my opinion, they're twisting scripture, they're misusing and misrepresenting scripture, but it is an approach that actually looks at the language of scripture and seeks to develop a framework based on at least some of the texts of scripture, and therefore this idea is is kind of slippery, kind of hard to get a hold of, and kind of hard to think about biblically in a way that we can come away saying, yes, absolutely, this is right, or yes, absolutely, this is wrong. If you come into the conversation with conditional immortality presuppositions, You can make an argument from Scripture that sounds good and makes sense and at least harmonizes portions of Scripture. Now, I am going to go on to argue that conditional immortality is an unbiblical view of hell, but I want us to understand that this is not a view that we can just ignore and hope it will go away. Unless we deal with it, conditional immortality is here to stay. Now, coming back to our main discussion, 
again, we've talked about three things so far. First, those who believe in conditional immortality don't believe that man is immortal by nature. Uh, Secondly, they would distinguish between hell being eternal and humans being in hell eternally. And third, they would interpret the verses that speak of a sinner experiencing eternal judgment, eternal condemnation, as meaning this judgment cannot be undone. It is an eternally fixed judgment, a judgment from which there is no return, uh, again, ceasing to exist for all eternity. Conditional immortality does allow that sinners may suffer for a time in hell. Sinners in hell may suffer for a time for their sins. Once their sin is appeased, they are annihilated, and this helps them account for the various descriptions of the sufferings of hell, even allowing for a more traditional understanding of conscious torment, but without the eternal dynamic. And so once a sinner has suffered sufficiently for his sin, he is blotted out, he ceases to exist, he is annihilated. Arguments for conditional immortality often rely heavily on the Old Testament language relative to the judgment of the wicked. Uh, Passages like Psalm 37, verse 10, Yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. These kinds of passages are used to justify the idea that sinners will ultimately cease to exist. After all, Psalm 37 says they shall be no more. Isaiah uses similar language in chapter 1, verse 28 of Isaiah. It says that those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. This language is used to argue that God's judgment of the wicked is a total destruction, an annihilation of their existence. It is common for those who hold to conditional immortality to use the Old Testament over and against the New Testament to nullify the clearer meaning of the latter. Are we best to understand these and other related texts as teaching that the wicked and sinful will be annihilated in the judgment? It is important for us to remember that the Old Testament was given to the physical nation of Israel. It deals primarily with physical, tangible things. Thus, we need to be careful how much we let those descriptions dictate our interpretations of clear New Testament passages. Yes, there are spiritual dynamics in the Old Testament. Yes, it is given for our instruction. Yes, we ought to learn from it. But the focus is still primarily on God's work in the physical realm. God's promised land was physical, Canaan. God's blessings were physical, milk and honey, prosperity and riches, protection, etc. God's judgments, too, were physical. When Israel rebelled, they were conquered by their enemies, and they were exiled into a foreign land and were no longer in the land God had given them. Recognizing the physical dynamic of the Old Testament shapes our interpretation of those Old Testament passages about God's judgment of the wicked. They're focused on God's judgment of the wicked and of Israel's enemies by removing them from their place on the earth. To use these to describe the eternal destinies of the wicked is an abuse of Scripture. And I'm talking about that briefly now. I'd like to come back to Psalm 37 and talk about some of these things in more detail, and I plan to do that as I'm able. There's certainly more to the conditional immortality framework than we've taken the time to discuss today in this podcast, um, but this should at least give you an idea of some of the central claims, and I've done my best to represent them as well as possible from their material. So for those of you who hold to the traditional view, hopefully this is helpful. If you are favorable to the conditional immortality view, I welcome your interaction and your feedback. And you can reach me at podcast at theologicaltouchpoints.com if you want to talk about this further. So the question I want to leave with you, and we'll pick this up next time, is this, is conditional immortality biblical? 
As we work through this, I think we can admit there's a certain appeal to the conditional immortality understanding of hell. Now, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I can relate to the discomfort experienced by thinking and talking about hell as the Bible portrays it to us. Hell is uncomfortable to talk about and horrifying to think about. Conditional immortality creatively weaves scripture together to soften the severity of hell without erasing it entirely. It gives us another explanation, another framework that's based on some passages of scripture that makes hell more palatable. There's a good deal of emotional appeal to the idea that God will eventually release sinners from suffering. It portrays a, a kinder God and eases the terrors of hell. But is it what the Bible teaches? The short answer is no. The long answer is more than I want to cover on this episode. And so we'll pick this up next time. Join me again in two weeks to continue our analysis of conditional immortality into the scriptures. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Touchpoints podcast. This podcast is a production of Sword and Trumpet Ministries. For more information, visit swordandtrumpet.org slash podcast or theologicaltouchpoints.com slash podcast. If you have thoughts or questions, you can contact us at podcast at theologicaltouchpoints.com. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it.